Honor, I'm Dan Gibson. I represent the respondent appellant, Amanda Wallace. I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. Uh, if it were entirely up to me, I would be up here talking about the First Amendment. I'd be talking about unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats taking people's children from them and how that negatively impacts our community and how my client has a right to protest those things. But I'm not entirely at my own disposal. I represent Ms. Wallace. And to resolve Ms. Wallace's case, you do not need to reach the First Amendment because the statutes here are clear that the application of the trial court uh, of those statutes was incorrect. It's only if you disagree with us about those statutes that you need to reach the First Amendment issues. And there are three reasons why the statutes in this case say that appellant's position is correct. The first is the statutory term in 95-264. That's the statute that we're actually directly proceeding under here. That prohibits unlawful conduct. And I think it's important to note before we get too far into anything else, that in the First Amendment realm, there is a distinction between speech and conduct. Um, so expressive conduct is protected, and we need to, before we can uh, decide whether or not the statute affects the First Amendment or anything like that, we have to decide whether the prohibited action is speech or conduct. Um, and we would contend that the actions that are trying to be prohibited here are pure speech. There's no conduct. And the reason why there's no conduct is the second statutory argument, which is 95-260's definition of harassment, which is that you have to do on more than one occasion, you have to do it without legal purpose, and you have to have the intent to place the employee in reasonable fear. That intent element is the thing that separates speech from conduct. Mr. Gibson, I want to make sure Judge Hill's order starts on page, record page 8, 9, and 10. Yes, Your Honor. And then there's a number of exhibits in the record. I, I want to make sure what the, the extent of the order that is before us today. Can you clarify that? As I understand it, um, the attachments were attachments to the complaint, the petition in this case. I don't believe they were attachments to the order itself. Um, I think that that is somewhat unclear, and I'll, I'll concede I was not trial counsel. Is that not what the order says, though, about they're incorporated by reference? Does that mean the court was taking them as exhibits and attaching them to the order? As I read it, the, the incorporation language is on page 8, uh, it's the third checkbox under findings. It's handwritten. It's, it's the very last sentence of that. And the incorporation says all other facts alleged in the petition are incorporated herein. Now, I think the trial court could have said we incorporate the entire petition, we incorporate the facts and the exhibits, but it just says we're incorporating the facts alleged in the petition. And I think even if you allow that to stand, it doesn't include the exhibits. But this court is being consistently very uh, serious about trial court's duties to find facts. You can't just incorporate a written report or a petition or a complaint. This court has held that time and time again because the trial court has a duty to find facts. And that duty to find facts, when, when you don't follow that duty, 
it directly impedes this court's ability to review the record on appeal because this court doesn't find facts. But you agree that Judge Hill's order is at a minimum pages 8, 9, and 10, right? Yes, Your Honor. Including the handwritten exhibit that follows. The, the handwritten attachment that I believe is at page 10. I just yes. shut my copy of. Yes. Um, and I think the thing that, uh, that's significant there is um, you'll find, I think that's the reason why that page is file stamped and dated the same time as uh, the no contact order. In fact, I think they were filed at exactly the same time, at least according to their file stamps. And so the, the, the exhibits that start on page 11, whether they're incorporated or not, they were not part of the filed order, correct? I don't believe they were. Okay, so let's talk about what portions of the order you're not contesting. Okay. So the first thing is, respondent her followers shall be allowed to peacefully protest. You're not challenging that. I don't think anyone is contending that she would be allowed to reasonably protest. Uh, and I'm looking at time, place, and manner. That's to where I'm going. Sure. Number two, respondent and her followers shall remain no less than 25 feet from the employee entrance and the main entrance of the DSS while protesting. So I think that this is where the time, manner, place restriction starts to, the typical application of time, manner, and place is somewhat preempted here. Is that, is, that, is that restriction legally valid? I don't think it is. And the reason why I don't think it is, if this were in a Durham County ordinance and it said nobody, period, end of sentence, can protest or be within 25 feet of the employee or the main entrance of the DSS building, I think that that could potentially be a legitimate time, manner, place restriction. While, while protesting, it's limited while protesting. It's not, doesn't restrict them from standing there, mute, or coming and going, right? So, yes. So I think there's, there's two separate issues there. One is that addition while protesting is on its face a content-based restriction on speech. So if they wanted to stand out in front of the DSS building and hand DSS employees candy bars and cups of coffee, they'd be allowed to do it because the government likes that speech, but because the government doesn't like protesting, they're not allowed to do it. The second issue is that this is not an ordinance or a statute. This is an injunction. And on its face, the injunction only applies to Ms. Wallace and her followers. So you've singled out a specific group of people, and you're saying only these people have to follow this rule. That's but not an a... Order an order operates on parties. You agree with that? That's correct. So it's, it's a party before the court that is subject to the order. Uh, Ms. Wallace is subject to the order. And as I read the order, when it says Ms. Wallace and her followers, um, if someone were to protest in front of the DSS building, I think that there would probably be at the trial court perhaps a contempt proceeding against my client where it says you have you have allowed or conspired with your followers to protest. Now, you all have cited the uh, NAACP case where the court has allowed restrictions on members or people under the control to be included. Do you agree with that? Yes. As a general proposition. Uh, respondent and her followers shall not use any voice amplification. I think that has the same not the while protesting issue, but it's the same issue as this is, again, being applied to 
a specific group of people. If if there were, um, is that a, is that a legitimate time, place, or manner restriction? Well, I think it, it almost gets to to the same question that you're asking in the case immediately before this, which is, can you totally ban noise amplification always and everywhere? That's not time, manner, and place. It says never. The time is never. The place is nowhere. The manner is not at all. So getting beyond that, uh, you know, even if it was not just limited to my client, if you said we are Durham County and we are prohibiting everyone from using noise amplification devices, that would have clear First Amendment issues. And then the fourth one is that not to uh, yell or shout when minor children are leaving the building when they appear to be exercising DSS supervisor's visitation. That is the one that I am by far the most sympathetic to. I think that comes fairly close to a time, manner, and place restriction, but you still hit the problem of it being content-based and it being a prior restraint on speech. Um, it's content-based. I've kind of looked at it a couple times and kind of gone back and forth on that. So what's your your thoughts on the content base of, of the yeller chanting? And this, this is the whole basis of, uh, th this goes to the entire order. Because the order is targeted at Miss Wallace and her followers, it's targeting them because of the things that they said. And if you look at the transcript evidence, DSS was pretty clear that the problems they had were the uh, inflammatory rhetoric, the moral judgments, the accusations and insults that my client was using. So when you're targeting a particular group, it may not necessarily on its face be content-based, but if we say the ACLU uh, can't protest outside of the Durham County Department of Social Services, but the John Locke Foundation can, it might not on its face be content-based, but in its application, it certainly is content-based because you're targeting a particular group of people because you don't like their viewpoint. But the every, every injunction does that. Every injunction is directed to a defined class of parties or individuals, correct? That's correct. And that's why injunctions affecting political speech are treated with uh, such rigor and such suspicion, because it's, it's treated as a prior restraint on speech, and it's sort of presumptively a content-based restriction. So I think to, to survive that level of scrutiny, there's got to be some compelling governmental interest and it's got to be narrowly tailored to advancing that governmental interest. I think there's an argument that this fourth one does survive that. When you get to voice amplification or protesting within 25 feet, I don't see how that advances and is the least restrictive means of advancing that legitimate governmental interest. So we've had numbers of cases that have ruled uh, on amplification. And, and have upheld those restrictions. You do agree with that? I do, yes. So content-based versus time, place, or manner. Do you, agree, do you agree that time, place, and manner can regulate content? When you give it, where you give it, how you get it. Isn't that regulating content? I don't think time, manner, place restrictions are restrictions on the content of speech. If, if a time, manner, place restriction is dependent on what is being said, it you, stops being a time, manner, place restriction and starts right, You can content. go into a room by yourself and you can say or do whatever you want in whatever volume you want to say it. But when you come out 
in this place, at this time, in this manner, you can't do that. Yes. I think as long as it applies regardless of the content of the speech, it is a time, manner, place restriction. I would say when it's getting done through an injunction, there's that second element of it being a prior restraint on speech in that it's, it's applied, again, to a particular person. We cited precedent on that in, in our reply brief where um, we are particularly suspicious of these things, again, because the, the proper way to do that isn't for a judge to say, we're going to restrict this group of people's speech rights. It's for Durham County to say, these are the limitations on anybody who wants to use noise amplification. Because there's a, there's a targeting element when you're dealing with a particular party and you say, only these people can't use noise amplification. As Durham has a noise ordinance, does it not? I believe it does. Doesn't it regulate the decibels of uh, output? It does, and that's exactly, that, that's another reason why the order in this case, I think, should be struck down and doesn't make sense, because it's going over and above Durham's noise ordinance. We think Durham's noise ordinance is sufficient for the purposes of restricting noise amplification here. I don't see any need. It goes to the least restrictive means part of uh, strict scrutiny. Why, why do you need to always and everywhere ban noise amplification when there's a noise ordinance that's already on the books that my client's already got to follow? Can Durham County restrict people from talking in its libraries? I think it can. I think that that, again, is a, is a so there's, there's several differences. A church? I'm sorry. A church? I think, well. A hospital? So the, the question that we're getting to here is whether this is a, a public forum for First Amendment purposes. And I think when you're talking about the street outside of a courthouse or the street outside of a government building, we are more suspicious of those regulations. If we say you can't use noise amplification outside of the General Assembly, that's very different to saying you can't use noise amplification even inside the General Assembly. You know, there, there are places where, yes, it is appropriate to restrict those types of speech. We're not saying there are no restrictions on speech. Well, help us draw the lines. So I think the lines here need to be focused primarily on the statute itself. And that, that's our biggest problem with the judge's order in this case, is the statute requires a specific finding of intent, and that intent is, under the statute's terms, the intent to place the employee in reasonable fear. That's when your speech under this statute crosses the line and becomes something that the government can legitimately regulate. And that statute is 95-260, defining harassment as relevant here. The trial courts didn't make that required finding of intent. And DePrima is the controlling authority. That's this court's opinion that says there has to be a specific finding of intent, and it's not enough just to infer that finding of intent. It has to be specifically made. Now, the department has argued that you can sort of infer it under St. John and other cases from a finding of intimidation, um, because St. John dealt with a witness intimidation case. DePrima interpreted and applied St. John and said there has to be a specific finding of intent. But I think what's especially important and noteworthy in DePrima is when you look at paragraph 12 of that court's decision, it recites the findings of fact, the relevant findings of fact from the district court. And that begins, the very first sentence, defendant has been intimidating and harassing the plaintiff by the following actions. 
Now, if a finding of fact that someone was intimidating was sufficient under the statute, DePrima would have said, all right, well, there's a finding of fact of intimidation. But that's not what DePrima said. DePrima said, plaintiff's appellant counsel argues such a finding can be inferred from the trial court's other findings. We reject this argument. It is clear from our holdings in Ramsey and St. John that such a finding must be specifically made, not inferred. The reason why that finding has to be specifically made is that intent is the thing that, sell, that separates unlawful criminal conduct from lawful expressive speech. Okay, the North Carolina legislature has outlawed or criminalized communicating threats. That's correct. And the constitutionality of that statute against the First Amendment challenge has been upheld. You agree with that? Yes. If, if my client were communicating threats, I think that there could be an injunction against my client's speech. The record evidence here is not that she was communicating threats. In fact, the Department of Social Services, and this is transcript page 70, uh, my client represented herself at the trial court, and she asked the director of the Durham County Department of Social Services, Ben Rose, have I ever threatened you? And his answer has been, well, actually, her question was directly, have I been threatening your physical safety on the phone? I've never spoken with you on the phone. What about via email? Have I threatened you via email? You have not threatened me, but you have made demands. I think that's it. Case closed. It's the petitioner's own evidence that there were no threats here. You made demands. When they talk about the things that they have a problem with, it's moral judgments. It's calling us kidnappers. It's saying that this system is racist. Those are the sorts of things that are protected political speech. You're allowed to say the Durham County Department of Social Services is an aspect of systemic racism. We can disagree with that. We can have an argument as a matter of public policy whether or not that's true. But what you can't do is you can't say, well, someone might hear that and decide that they don't like the Durham County Department of Social Services and then act on that. We are very protective of this type of speech because it's core political speech. You mentioned the uh, General Assembly and um, the ability of that public body to, to regulate its ability to conduct its business. Yes. And for people sitting in the stands shouting during votes or during debates or even outside with or without borehorns, does not any public authority have the right or the uh, ability to be able to conduct its activities in a way that is not disrupted. Yes, I completely agree that the government has the right to conduct its activities without being disrupted. And can it can it also adopt uh, means and procedures on how you voice challenges to that activity? It can. Those are subject to limitations on the right to speech and petition. You got to, you know, you got to file this, or you got to write this, or fill out this form, whatever. Yes. Agencies do that all the time. Government does that all the time. Yes. And that's the proper means to challenge their activity. Exactly. If if that's what the Durham County Department of Social Services had done, had said we need to stop people disrupting our ability to do our job. So if someone walked in right now during this hearing and started screaming and yelling and making accusations, would this court have the ability to prevent that from happening? I think Remy would probably stop them. Okay. Um, so 
where, again, I'm trying to draw lines. I'm trying to say, this is okay, this is not okay. And you need to help us do well, that. Well, so there, there are several different lines that are relevant. The first is that public forum line. So there's a difference between protesting in this courtroom and protesting on the street outside of this courtroom. If, if outside on the street is disrupting what we're doing here, can we control that? Yes. But there's obviously more limitations on outside than inside the courtroom because of the, the public forum doctrine. The second limitation is uh, whether or not the speech that you are trying to limit is political speech or true threat or, again, that conduct versus speech dichotomy. Um, so, for example, like a, a directed denial of service attack. So that's when you send a whole bunch of emails or server requests to a server to crash a website. That's not speech. That's conduct. Even though the, the thing you do, you're doing may arguably be verbal, it's still conduct, not speech. And that's why I get back to 95-260 prohibits unlawful conduct. So the, the question here is, when, how do you decide the difference between speech and conduct? Um, State versus Shackleford, which was one of the cases we cited, um, the concurrence in that case goes into great detail about the difference between speech and conduct. Um, and speech that's integral to a criminal act and so on and so forth. And I think the definition uh, of harassment here and that requirement of a specific intent to place a person in reasonable fear is the difference, again, between something that is First Amendment protected speech and something that is unlawful conduct. When your speech is, I'm going to kill you if you don't agree with me, that's not protected political speech. But when you say, God's going to judge you for what you've done, I think that is protected political speech. Um, Does a public official have less rights than a private individual? I think the First Amendment is pretty clear on that point. Um, New York Times versus Sullivan treats public officials very differently to private individuals. And I think it's especially true. It actually gives them more protection to that, does it not? It gives more protection to public officials? Mm -hmm. as, as to, to try to do a defamation standard, it has to be an actual malice, correct? For a public official. Yes. Um, but if I were to say something about uh, a private individual, it would just need to be a negligent standard for me to proceed against them. Um, so, so that's my point. At what point does a person have a right to go about their job, to be free of, of, of harassment, free of yelling and screaming and disruption? Well, I don't think that's what this statute is actually trying to prohibit. When it's talking about harassment, it's defining it as a, as a specific legal term of art that has that intent to place the employee in reasonable fear. It's not just anything that might be annoying. It's not just anything. Is that a reasonable person standard? I think when you use the word reasonable fear, it is a reasonable person standard. And we also cited state versus Furby. Uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, on the reasonable person standard. It's not sufficient to be subjectively frightened. And that's why that evidence on directly asking the DSS director, did I ever threaten you, is so important. Because if he's saying, you never threatened me, how on earth could a reasonable person under the circumstances be placed in fear of their safety? So if, this, if every bit of this activity had occurred outside your door or window, would you have the ability to go and get restrictions or restraints put in place? I think that would be a question perhaps under Chapter 50C, under the, the, the Stalking Act. And I still think, 
and, and I don't have 50C in front of me, but I think 50C has two separate intent prongs. One is that intent to place the person in reasonable fear, and the other is to cause emotional distress. So there's got to be a finding of fact by the trial court, even under 50C, for one of those two intents. And I want to take you back to something on, on the order where it says uh, that all the other facts alleged in the petition are incorporated by reference. And so the petition appears to also reference those photos and exhibits. Uh, there's certain things. It looks like the court's adopting specifically eight paragraphs into their order. Is there anything that prohibits the trial court judge from doing that? Yes. This what, court what has that? held repeatedly that you cannot just incorporate the allegations in a complaint. You can't just incorporate findings of, uh, you can't just incorporate written reports, so on and so forth. We cited that authority in our brief. Um, I've written down in my handwriting, because I thought that this might be a question, Schneiart versus Schneinart, 260 NC App 236. I believe we cited that case in our brief. If we didn't, I'd be happy to put forward a memo so, of additional So forward. then the exhibits there, if they were admitted into evidence and it's making reference to those, is the, court, is the trial court also excluded from considering those as to what may have been intimidation or not? I don't think it's prohibited from uh, considering those, and I don't think it's prohibited from attaching the exhibits. But even if the exhibits are attached to the order, they still don't solve that fundamental problem of there not being a specific finding of the required statutory intent. The premise says you've got to make that finding. And the reason why you've got to make that finding is that's the thing that turns us into the sort of conduct that you can regulate. That's the thing that makes it no longer political speech and starts making it conduct that can be regulated under the Workplace Violence Protection Act. So if you don't have that finding, you're just limiting political speech. You're into your rebuttal time, and I do want at some point for you to address the ability of the trial court to affect the followers or the related parties to the person restrained to. So. I, I, I'd be happy to do that now, just because it's, it's as convenient time as any. Um, but what, while you're doing that, a, a parallel question is, was that remedy beyond the prayer for relief in the original complaint? That's an interesting question. I don't believe the petition asked for any relief against the followers. I do think it's beyond the terms of the statute. Certainly binding people that aren't parties to the case, I think has pretty clear due process issues. Uh, and how are you going to um, distinguish the NAACP case then? Well, I think the NAACP case, again, is, is against a political entity, or not a political entity, a legal entity. My client is not a legal entity. And there was evidence in the NAACP case, as I read it, of actual agency. I think you'd have to have some agency relationship, and there's just not that evidence in this transcript. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. We reserve the rest of your time for rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor. Ms. Eisenberg, Ms. Scott, Mr. Scott, I guess we'll hear from you. Yes, thank you. Okay. So the question comes is, where do we draw the line? Uh, yes, Your Honor, that's correct. And I think this case brings a unique set of facts. If I may, I'm going to use the Elmo here for a minute. Um, hopefully that is visible. Okay. Let's start with this exhibit right here. Um, Your Honor, this is, a, uh, this, is, this is a case about preventing workplace violence under Chapter 95, Article 23, the Workplace Violence Prevention Act. This is not a facial challenge to the statute. This is not a, a challenge of the constitutionality of the application of the statute to these facts. For that, 
um, counsel would have had to file a separate action to challenge the statute under um, North Carolina law. Um, what this is about is about protecting um, DSS employees who were fearful. Um, and there's ample evidence in the record of that, um, evidence to show a steady escalation of egregious behavior. Um, I'll start with, uh, in the record, on February 2022, Wallace began, first began working with a family in contacting CPS to challenge some decisions that CPS had made about that family. This is in the transcript, page 37. Ms. Wallace uh, actually worked at DSS, did she not? Correct, she did, but this is after she no longer worked there and was now working in, a, I guess, an individual capacity with families who were contacting her through her organization called Operations stop CPS where she offers services to help families challenge decisions that CPS has made. Um, so this started in February. Also around this time Operation CPS is doing weekly protests at the DSS building on Tuesdays and Thursdays. There's no request for a no contact order during this time. Okay. On March 4th, 2022 we've got um, postings on Instagram account. This is on the um, Operation CPS's Instagram account, which is operated by Wallace, and I'll, I'll point you direct to Petitioner's Exhibit 1A. Um, 1A, 1B, 1C, which I'll also show, were posted around March 4th, 2022. Exhibit 1A states, the mission is to protect parents' rights by any means necessary. You see a photograph of a gun range, and you see the quote, are you ready? This is also, this was introduced and admitted into evidence in the transcript page 21 and transcript page 22 where Director Ben Rose describes the photos. He also testifies that he was aware of these. Um, and this is also on the record at page 11. That is correct. And um, Was that a public post or a private post? This was on a public um, operation CPS Instagram account. I believe this was under stories. So they're visible for, for 24 hours and then they disappear. Um, but I've also got some other information to share with you. So exhibit 1B, this is a, uh, exhibit 1B has a quote, I think I got him. You see Miss Wallace, she's got an Operation Stop CPS t-shirt, her hand is in a fist, and she has an image of a target with multiple bullet holes. This was also introduced into evidence at the hearing on page 21 and 23. This is record page 12. Thank you, Your Honor. And, um, and then we've also got exhibit 1C. All of these were posted or published around March 4th, 2022. Um, exhibit 1C, you've got an image of a couple with an assault rifle, holding an assault, assault rifle and a pregnant woman next to a man. And the quote, and it's from, this, is, this was posted on the Instagram account. Operation Stop CPS. When it comes to the protection of our children, we have to be ready to protect them by any means necessary. This was also introduced at the hearing, page 21. No, no contact, there was no request for a no contact order um, around March 2022, okay? Did the, did the evidence show, just remind me, uh, did the evidence show that these were posted by Ms. Wallace posted the, by the organization. This was posted on Ms. Wall on the Operation Stop CPS Instagram account, which is operated by Ms. Wallace, who is a founder of the organization. I don't believe the record says specifically, you know, whether it was her that posted or whether someone in her organization, but it is posted by her organization, which she founded and which she admitted to knowing about the posting. Was there evidence that? Uh, or a finding a fact that she posted these? 
Um, these, there is, a, I will get to that, if, you may, if I may, Your Honor, I'm going to address that in another part of my argument. Um, I, yes, there was. Um, so to go through the chronology, which I think is very important to understand the escalation of events that led to the filing of this petition. It wasn't simply that there were protests. It wasn't simply that there were these postings. There's a lot more going on. So in May of 2022, Rachel Moses, who is an employee at DSS, received some emails from Wallace. This was on transcript um, page 68, um, lines 18 to 19, and also on page 58 of the transcript. Um, I have received emails from Ms. Wallace demanding that the children on a specific case that I'm handling be returned. I've also received, and there's been pictures of me on her web page and Facebook, and people from that followers, her followers have emailed and called me, harassed me, called me names, threatened me that if I did not return the children, something would happen to my children. Also on May 24th, 2022, this is in the transcript, Moses testified that Wallace and or her followers came to her housing complex, took pictures, and took photos of her car. So Ms. Wallace and the people associated with Operation CPS went so far as to find the personal home addresses of DSS workers and physically went to their home. In early June, and there was no, nothing was done yet at this point either, early June, Ben Rose, who is the DSS director, started getting posts to his Facebook, calling him a white, this is his personal Facebook account, not a public account, not his, um, not his, like a DSS account, calling him a white supremacist, calling him a kidnapper, demanding he return children. He testified he was distressed and disturbed by the activity, but that he did not seek a protective order at that time. Fast forward to July 27th, 28th. Moses, Rachel Moses, received 300 text messages, maybe over 300 text messages. This is in the transcript, page 59, between 7.43 p.m. and 2.18 a.m. in the morning, stating multiple rhetoric. Now, these messages were not texted from Ms. Wallace, that is correct, but they were related to Operation CPS. They were clearly within the context of the stuff that was being posted um, about that. Um, on August 13th, which was a Saturday, Miss Wallace was seen by Ben Rose, he testified at this, following him in his car. He was traveling from the store to his home where his elderly father and his daughter were. And he learned from another employee that Wallace came to a different employee's house. She stopped at his elderly father's house, had the bullhorn out, had protesters in front of the home. Um, he did, the police were contacted, the police, I believe, arrived and, and discussed about how this could be trespassing, this is in the record, um, and he felt threatened because this was his personal residence and not his workplace. But no, no charges as far as threats or trespassing? That's correct. There's I'm not aware of any charges. That's correct. I'm not aware of any charges. So, <clears throat> if that conduct, if it was criminal or actionable, there was no, I mean, you cannot... It was not dealt with at that time, correct? Well, here's how it was dealt with. So on August 16th, Chantel Smith, so again, we're talking period of times from February all the way now to August 16th, Chantel Smith received a call from the supervisor. At one of the Tuesday protests, so every Tuesday and Thursday they, they protest outside, um, staff was approached by protesters. This is in the transcript, page 93. Um, protesters were videotaping staff, calling staff kidnappers. There was a child that was there for visitation. Okay, this was on the employee entrance exit. 
Because parking, this is her testimony, because parking is an issue at our building, DSS aides have been allowed to park in the loading and unloading when they're transporting children. So this is not the main entrance, this is the employee entrance to ensure their safety. They will park on the side of the building and it was after a supervised visit. Both visits were after parent time. So this is during DSS conducting biz business which is parental visitation. So a DSS aide was approached by his vehicle, was shouted at, there was a camera out recording him, and they told the ch child that was being transported that she, he was being kidnapped and not to worry. So this was very, this was interfering. Clearly there's an interference here with business. There's an interference with the feeling of personal safety of employees at their homes because of people showing up to their homes. You've got that coupled you know, with the fact that you have these postings that I showed you previously, I think I got them, um, and by any means necessary, are you ready? And at that point, you've got, um, you know, you've also got, also in August 16th, you've got the petition. So if you go to the petition, Your Honor, um, that was filed on August 16th, and that is in the record on pages two through five. Um, and if you look on uh, the petition, they outline pretty much what I kind of just went through here. Um, it, it discusses that Wallace was standing at employee entrance, that she had tracked down home addresses. Um, there were some posts saying, keep applying pressure. Don't let evil human beings take minor children away from their culture. And that she won't stop until the child is home. Um, from that petition, there was a temporary order entered. Then on August 24th, you had the order that's being appealed from, the order that is before this court. And that's in the record on pages 8 through 10. And this no contact order is a form order. So you've got these boxes that the district court judge will check to make the requisite findings that are required under the statute. And so under the boxes that are checked, they state that the petitioner's employee has suffered unlawful conduct by the respondent. And then they go through to make some specific findings about the conduct that has led this employee to um, feel harassed. And the unlawful conduct is the harassment, which does contain an element of intent, which is knowing, um, knowing conduct, including written or printed. And this is from the definition of harass in um, Chapter 14A-277-3A, really subsection 2B. It's directed at a specific person. You were asking about where do you draw the line. Directed at a specific person that torments terrorizes or terrifies that person and serves no uh, legitimate purpose. And so she's also in, um, in this order, you've got, um, you've got a finding that is incorporating the facts herein. Um, but before I get to that point, I wanted to. Let me, have a let me ask a question. The ex parte order, I'm just looking at sequence and timeline. The ex parte order was filed on the 16th of August, right? Yes. That and was then, the same day as the petition, yes. And that was ex parte? Yeah. Uh, I believe. It's uh, checked. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, and then on the 24th day of August, which is literally eight days later, is when Judge Hill entered the uh, no contact order, right? That's correct. That is correct. Um, and so he entered this order based on testimony from Ben Rose, Rachel Moses, Chantel Smith, and others at social services. Ben Rose testified kind of what his 
what his feelings were or what his reaction was, which I think were reasonable reactions based on an objectively reasonable person's standard. This is in the transcript, page 16. What I have been experiencing, and he's talking about the obligation he has as a director to keep his workplace safe. Um, what I've been experiencing with the increased rhetoric and the targeted harassment is that his staff is concerned about the potential fear of violence. When you leave comments such as, take them out sniper style, okay, this is a comment that was left on the social media page of Operation CPS in reaction to one of Wallace's posts. I think it can definitely promote and incite potential violence against our workforce, including any of us. And I think that has caused great emotional distress amongst our staff because they have difficult jobs as it is. This has added to, the, to their inability to even serve cases, has caused dysfunction in sleep, anxiety, doing the jobs they were mandated to do. Um, do you, you know, agree that a public uh, official's conduct and actions can be questioned? Yes, I Criticized? do. Criticized? 100% yes. 100%. Verbally, in writing? Yes. So again, when does, when does legitimate questioning, criticism, when does that cross the line? When it reaches to a level of uh, promoting violence, when it reaches to a level to cause, um, to, to uh, satisfy the requirements of, of what would be called harassment. Um, and the harassment, that's exactly what the trial judge found in this case. He found that everything going together constituted harassment. Well, let me it, talk about the conduct. Just let's look at the, the last example you just gave where it's a post on her post. Is it conduct for somebody not to delete somebody else's statement? How does that equate to Ms. Wallace's conduct? The conduct of Ms. Wallace that was problematic in this case is is statements such as, you know, mission to protect by any means necessary, the, the targeted, the showing of, you know, we're gonna, we've got, a, we've got a target, we've got a gun, we're at a gun range, and then you've got a comment, take it out sniper style. So her conduct is in the incitement. And we have cases in the Supreme Court, I believe it's Brandenburg, talks about how, you know, incitement of violence is not protected speech. This is unprotected speech. When you look at it all together, this is unprotected speech. That's why the, the court was correct in issuing this order to limit and restrict, to protect, to protect the employees and to prevent potential workplace violence. Does this order extend to homes of the DSS workers? Well, I know that the DSS workers, there's evidence in the record to show that they work from home. And so I think under that, it could, it could extend to their homes. If and that's the home is included in, um, sorry, I guess in paragraph 4F of the original complaint? Yes, um, it is. Let's see here. Uh, the, you're talking about the petition? Yes, the, com the complaint for... Yes, that's correct. That was part of the relief that was being requested. So is it your contention that this order provides that relief? Yes. Then by the same logic, wouldn't it also provide relief that she's not allowed to do this outside the Durham County Courthouse? Uh, no, it specifically says that she can protest. Um, she's still allowed to peacefully protest, and the limitations in front of... Um, 
it, limitations are to the DSS entrances, the employee entrance and the main entrance. So she could peacefully protest on the sidewalk outside of the employee's Yes, staff, correct. Or seeing them at a coffee shop, things like that. At the, it would be peacefully protest. It would be limited to peacefully protesting, yes. But that would not be considered harassment. A peaceful protest would not be considered a harassment. Well, this is a no contact order. This isn't a, a don't harass. This is not to go about. Well, it says, Your Honor, on page 8, um, it says uh, not visit, assault, molest, or otherwise interfere with the workplace, otherwise interfere with operations. It discusses ceasing stalking, ceasing harassment, not to abuse, not to injure. Um, there, is a, there is a statement in here about not contacting. I think that that, um, I think that the judge, what the judge was trying to do, I believe, in his um, written order you know, he was receiving evidence to indicate that there was a, a problem here, that there's a, a problem of potential violence, there's a problem of harassment, and, he, and applying the, the statute to those facts, he issues an order um, balancing the right to protest. They can still protest. So I think that to the extent that this order is restricting any communication at all, I think that, you know, that would have to be something that um, should be considered because, you know, she does have a First Amendment right um, to protest and that could include communication. But the issue is, I think, the conduct. I believe the opposing counsel even stated that when you look at crashing an email server with multiple emails, that's conduct even though technically it's communication because it's emails. And I think in that similar vein, something to that extent would have to be considered harassment and not be permitted under this order. How about the argument of the overreach trying to control folks that she, quote, does not control? So I believe that there's, um, there's some case law. I believe it's uh, Madsen um, versus uh, Women's Health Clinic where there was an attempt to say that an, an injunction against um, other protesters who weren't specifically named was not uh, appropriate, and then the court determined that there was no standing to challenge that, um, and that's something that we argued in our brief. Yes, but, but their argument, the other way to that, is that she's the one that's going to be held in contempt for actions of folks that she does not control. If she were to have this order and publicize it and say, we're going to have a protest, here's a copy of the order of what not to do, and then people violate the order, then no, she would not be held, she would, should not be held liable, would not be held liable. But that's not what it says. I think the spirit of the order is when it I, says I, that. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> well, Your Honor, we, I think. We, we deal with what's before us. So this is what the judge wrote down. These are the restrictions under which she is placed. So we've got to deal with these restrictions. Absolutely, Not Your what Honor. the judge could have muttered. Sure. Shoulda, woulda, okay. sure. Um, I think that the, if your honor, um, if this court believes that the um, that the that the restrictions in this order, um, I think the the proper remedy would then be to remand for more either more specific findings or you know to be um, tailored to you know to what it's intended to do. But I don't think that the remedy is not to reverse. The remedy is not to strike down. You know because that would that would leave DSS employees unprotected under these facts. How do you respond to counsel's argument that the NAACP case were directed toward members of that organization and that she is not an entity and uh, that, she, that she has no members? She is the founder and operator of Operation CPS. And Operation... Um, Does it have any entity legal status? other than 
it's a name attached to activities? So the, it is, I believe it does have, um, I believe it does have some filings with the Secretary of State, I believe. I'm not sure if that was in the record or not. Um, this is, again, this action is being filed specifically against Ms. Wallace because Ms. Wallace is the one. Not, not her organization. Yeah, it's individually going to the homes and who's, you know, who's, you know, this is, her conduct is resulting in the actions which the court made a finding was harassment. And to that point, I wanted to also note that we disagree with, um, first of all, we agree that there needs to be a specific finding. I think that is clear. However, what was not clear, I think, in some of the arguments made today is that while the Court of Appeals has, um, the, the statement that the court, of, the statement that the trial court can never incorporate in an order, and that incorporating in an order is not a finding. That is not entirely correct. That is not correct. Is it that um, the documents can support yes, the findings? Yes, and I have specific cases that also discuss where they referenced incorporated findings, and it's interesting to see how the court analyzed those cases. But they can't go back to a petition or a complaint and say, we're adopting this. Well, I, I, would, I would argue that they may. I would argue that they may. And, and the reason I say that is that if you go to the case, there's a case called In Regarding Booker, which we cited, which was cited in the briefs. This was decided in 2008 by the Court of Appeals. This was a case where you had a patient who was involuntarily committed, and, um, and there were findings of fact, you know, to, to support that. Then there was a secondary hearing on the recommitment to see if it would become more permanent. Um, the order extending the patient's recommitment order um, contained an incorporation of findings from a physician's report. Um, the physician's report, it was also a form order similar to this one where you have boxes that are being checked by the trial judge. And the trial and one of the boxes was based on the evidence presented by clear cogent convincing evidence, finds as facts, all matters set out, and it says in the physician's report specified below. And the report is incorporated by reference as filings. And so what the court did, they didn't just say, well, okay, you can't do this at all. What they said is that um, they looked at the facts of the report itself. They took the time to analyze the facts of the report, and they said the report reference contained an opinion of the doctor that respondent was mentally ill and dangerous to himself. But the only matters in the report for findings was that he was a white male of 56 years old with a history of abuse. The actual findings were not sufficient to support the determination. So they actually looked at it a little bit more closely than just say, okay, well, we're not gonna, we can't consider that at all. Is there a distinction to be made between a complaint versus uh, a report by a physician there? Because it's a document supporting the finding. I think that the, um, I hear what you're saying, Your Honor, and I think this is a unique case with a unique set of egregious facts. And in this case, you do have a petition that was verified um, it was verified by Ben Rose. So the petition itself, which contained a finding of fact of intent, and that's on page five of the record, um, paragraph seven, um, this was verified under oath, sworn and subscribed by Ben Rose. So I think it actually rises to a higher level of just an, an allegation, like an unverified allegation. And I think the proper course of action is to take a look at what was actually incorporated and determine whether what was incorporated is sufficient to make those findings a fact. And I would say that um, on page five, under paragraph seven, 
it specifically stated these posts were intended um, as a call to action for applying pressure and you know not to stop and so all of that and it also caused reasonable fear and so I think the judge knew that he saw the verified petition he heard all the testimony there's more more testimony can't get through all of it today looked at the photographs and then said he's incorporating this by reference and your honor I would also say the 2017 case decided by Judge Tyson which is in regarding KL um, that was another one where there was an argument that the order the, the order that incorporated findings was sufficient that was rejected but again in that case they did the same thing in Booker they actually looked at what were what was in the disposition order and there was this paragraph this is on page um, 275 of um, the reporter uh, 254 NCAP um, 269 page 275 these prior findings were the basis of the disposition order which provided custody with Mrs. E as primary plan and also required reunification efforts to remove it requires properly admitted evidence so they still looked at the order I mean they still considered whether or not the order incorporated contained sufficient findings they didn't just say well we're not even going to look at it because that's not enough you know, I think the fact that they took the time to analyze this suggests that there are situations, certain limited circumstances, you know, in unique fact situations where you can look and see, you know, where you can where the court can incorporate things into the findings. But if your honors disagree, the remedy is not to to strike the order. The remedy is to remand. Let me ask you a question here, kind of dealing with the who is and who isn't subject to this order. Looking at um, page four of the complaint, or sorry, page four of the record, the second paragraph of the attachment to the complaint. There's two names, Antoinette Hawes and Samantha Wynn, listed as among those followers and others. Are Miss Hawes and Miss Wynn subject to this court's order? I think the, the uh, I would argue that they that this order could be interpreted to su be subject to them. Yes. Then are those not necessary parties appearing on the face of the complaint that aren't present in this litigation? Yes, Your Honor. That's that's correct. They're not present in this litigation. If if the order applies to them. If the order applies to them, yes. And I th and I would like to point out that there's um, numerous conduct that Miss Wallace did herself um, that adequately supports the findings of fact and we've kind of gone through some of it already um, but I think that that's uh, very much in favor of was this the sole enforcement mechanism your client chose to try to ameliorate this conduct that's correct that's correct was was there any sit downs or meetings with these folks or try to have a forum or to be able to address it I am not aware that that information does not appear in the record your honor so would that not be a way a public official can address criticism? Well, I think if a public official has some reasonable fear for personal safety, that it might be reluctant to take such action. I mean, you could control the form in which it would occur, but I mean, isn't that, isn't a duty on a public official at least to respond or to, to address to legitimate criticism about how they do their job? Well, that also brings an interesting question, Your Honor, because uh, ben Rose is a public official, but he is not an elected official. And as he is a public official who is, is bound to carry out policy that's determined by an elected board, 
um, the elected board of the social services and policy that's approved by elected officials who are the board of commissioners. So this is not the same situation where you have a, a senator or a representative who's going to sit down with constituents. You know, this is a state. Um, this is a, a state agency whose business is being interfered with and disrupted by the conduct of Ms. Wallace, and for those reasons, the order should be upheld. Well, let me ask this just in terms of where speech is directed and if somebody's a policymaker or not. Um, I guess, is, is there any case law you have that if somebody's not a decision maker, they're not subject to having somebody speak to them or petition them? I, I don't believe there, I'm not aware of any, Your Honor. I'm aware of much, a lot, most of the case law cited by the plaintiff, or by the, Ms. Wallace, deals with elected officials. It deals with going to city council, that's a public forum, it, it goes to um, petitioning elected officials, so we know that that's clearly permitted. I don't see much about, um, about an, a government agency, and certainly there's always that right to criticize the government, but there's not a right to harass, and there's not a right to threaten, and there's not a right to create a reasonable fear of safety or disrupt that, that government agency from doing their job. Just as there's a right of the public to criticize this court, there's not a right of the public to send harassing messages or to, um, you know, or to, to create a fear, reasonable fear, um, for members of the court and other unelected, elected or unelected officials. So I see I'm almost out of time if there's no further questions. Oh, how do you um, respond quickly to the followers, um, the application of an order to the followers being beyond the prayer for relief sought, record page three? Well, I think that um, if you look at the, I mean, Judge Tyson pointed out that there is reference to followers in the allegations. Um, you know, the judge, uh, you know, I don't believe, um, the judge was hearing evidence about the followers, and I believe the judge was um, wanting to address that issue in, um, in the judge's findings, but it's true that specifically it does not state in here that, um, that the order was requested against the followers. So if, what's the, the remedy for this court if an order exceeds the prayer for relief? I think the remedy would be to remand um, for you know, specific findings and, and um, you know, have the, the order be entered to address that and still protect the employees from the potential for violence. I'll give you a moment to sum up if you'd like. Okay, thank you, Your Honor. Um, in summary, I would say that this is not protected speech. There's ample evidence in the record that the escalation of activities, conduct um, exceeded uh, what is considered protected speech, and these are unique and egregious facts that, um, that resulted in creating distress and resulted in disruption of um, government agencies' place of business, and it was reasonable for the trial judge to enter an order uh, based on the uh, Workplace Violence Protection Act. And you would have us to affirm the trial? Yes, control. we ask that your, your Honor affirm. And if Your Honor does not want to affirm everything, to remand with more specific Thank you. instructions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gibson. You have rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Your Honor started uh, opposing counsel's argument with a good question, which is where do you draw the line? And our answer to that question is clear. It's not really a matter for this court to draw the line. The General Assembly has already drawn it. 
the line that the General Assembly drew was when there is an intent to place the employee in reasonable fear. There's no finding that there was that intent here, and there's no evidence that there was that intent here. Um, opposing counsel spent a lot of time talking about record evidence and social media posts and so on and so forth. Um, well, I mean, when you, when you have someone standing in front of a gun range with targets with holes in front of them and say, go get them, I mean, that's pretty... There's, there's a number of problems with that. Um, one, when you look at the record evidence, uh, transcript page 46, my client asks, do you have any proof that I, Amanda Wallace, posted any of those posts? And the answer is, no, I don't. What and then when page she 12 on the record where it says, I think I got them, exhibit 1B, and it's a picture of the defendant. So the, the record evidence here is that there are pictures of Miss Wallace at a gun range, but the text that has been superimposed was not superimposed by Miss Wallace, and she did not post those. Could the court have rationally concluded by the, by the weight of the evidence that that is the case, though? I think that there would need to be some sort of record evidence, and when the evidence is, no, she didn't post them, no, we don't have any evidence that she posted them, and her testimony is, no, I didn't put those on the record, it's the petitioner's burden to prove that, but uh, Does even- Does the exhibit do that, though? I don't think the exhibit is self-authenticating. It doesn't prove who posted it. It doesn't prove who put that text on it. But does it not allow the fact finder to find by the greater weight of the evidence that that is the case? I think if there was a finding of fact that that was what happened, then this would be a very different case. But there's just no finding of fact. But even if those social media posts were out there, this court's uh, decision in Shackleford clearly addresses that, and the concurrence in this case goes into great detail specifically about social media posts. But Shackleford, I said, it's a big difference if it's something is directed out generally or directed to somebody. Yes. Here if, we have the emails in correlation with these posts. So, so isn't that a course of conduct that could be looked at altogether? I think if she had made those posts, I think that would be a good argument. But the evidence here is not that she made those posts. The evidence is here, it's not that she superimposed those words over those posts. So if you have emails and then social media posts, I think perhaps, yeah, that might get you over the line. But again, that's not what we're dealing with here. The record evidence is she denied it, and the department said there's no evidence. When you're talking about findings of fact, they have to be based on competent evidence. You can't just say, well, here's an exhibit. We don't know who posted it. We're going to make a finding of fact that you posted it in the absence of any competent evidence in the record. And that's exactly why, as the court did in De Prima, this court should not just remand and give them a second bite at the apple, let them put on additional evidence to plug all the holes in this case. They should vacate. That's what De Prima did, because the findings of fact in this case aren't sufficient. You can't just check boxes on an AOC form, and you can't just say, you know, th there were questions about the spirit of this order, so that we could avoid the text of the order. The, Petitioner in this case is the Durham County Department of Social Services. That's who filed the petition. Uh, they're the employer within the meanings of the statute. The order in this case, and, and I'll wrap up briefly here, is that the respondent not contact by telephone, written communication, or electronic means the employer or the employee's employee at the petitioner's workplace. So this is saying that Ms. Wallace cannot contact by telephone, written communication, or electronic means the Durham County Department of Social Services. That is facially overbroad. That, 
Go ahead, so finish your point. That prohibits her from communicating in any way with the Durham County Department of Social Services, regardless of whether or not it's harassment or fear or political protest. It just says you can't communicate with the Durham County Department of Social Services, period, end of sentence. Do you believe that the order, if I just use it in the phrase workplace, does it, and the incorporation by reference in other parts of the order, incorporate these other provisions on record page three, paragraph four F, the employee's personal residence in the Durham County Courthouse into workplace under the order? I think it's trying to. I think there's a question of how you actually read this order. And, and I, I hear the argument that the Durham County Department of Social Services and the court may not enforce the order as it's facially written or to, to its limits. But when we're talking about restrictions on speech or restrictions on other constitutional rights, the question isn't what is actually done. The question is what could be done. So if you pass an ordinance that says, um, we're only going to allow certain kinds of billboards, but then you prohibit all billboards, you violated the Constitution. The same principle applies here. So you would have us do what, Mr. Gibson? I would have you vacate, um, no remand hearing, uh, order the case be dismissed. Thank you. Thank you for good arguments. We appreciate the, uh, the skill and, and the, uh, the detail in which you gave us. And that, I think, completes our docket today. And if there's nothing further before the court, Mr. McClellan, will you adjourn, please? All rise.